Let's pray. Father, we come now to a passage that is, uh, for a Thanksgiving week, very appropriate. But at the same time, Lord, it, uh, it pierces us to the heart. It's been piercing me, Father, and so I pray that you will help me this morning to effectively communicate the truth. It's truth that Jesus said to his disciples, Father, and if we count ourselves his disciples, we can't ignore what we're about to hear. I can't ignore what I'm about to preach. And I need your help in my own life in how to handle this passage personally and in different situations, and I think that that is true of all of us. I don't think anyone escapes conviction when it comes to this passage. So, Father, I pray you will speak and your Holy Spirit will fill this place and fill our hearts and that your name, as we sang at the very beginning, at the end of all of this, will be glorified. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, beloved, I ask you to turn with me to Luke 17. We move on this last Lord's Day before Thanksgiving into a new chapter. And as I prayed, it's a very appropriate text given the season. After all, inherent in the reason Thanksgiving exists is the idea of people coming together. Um, even when they are different. Even when they have differences. It began almost 400 years ago when English pilgrims left pretty much all they knew and traversed the perilous North Atlantic Ocean with many hopes. And among them, well really foremost among them, was the freedom and the ability to worship God as they saw fit. Now, as we will eventually see in the church history class beginning in January... That didn't always happen in the idealized way we sometimes imagine it. Nevertheless, they came to the new world. They encountered new problems. They encountered new land, new peoples that were already here. And so in the autumn of eight, or not 18, 1621, the English pilgrims of Plymouth Colony came together with the Wampanoag Indians who'd helped them learn how to farm this new land, and they celebrated the harvest. They shared life together, they shared thanks together, and that was the first Thanksgiving as we have come to know it. Now most of us will gather with family this Thursday, but since Jesus says it's those who do the will of God who are His true family, it behooves us this morning as a spiritual family, as the family of God, to consider how we should give thanks, how we more directly need to be sharing life together. And that brings us to Luke 17, verses 1 through 4. He said to his disciples, It is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. 
This is not an easy passage to preach from. It's not an easy passage to take to heart. As we continue walking through this gospel, Jesus is continuing His walk toward Jerusalem and the cross. And in what we just read, He has once again turned His attention away from those grumbling Pharisees and back to His disciples who were following Him and, and, and seeking to love Him and learn from Him and act and talk and think like Jesus. That's what a disciple is supposed to do. Romans eight twenty eight through 30 is very clear that God is conforming all those He makes alive and justifies to the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so if we belong to the Father, we are to have the mind of the Son and exhibit the fruits of the Spirit. And that means we can do no better than heeding what Jesus Himself calls in Matthew 22, the greatest and foremost commandment, to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. You and I do not have an option. We have to love God with everything we are. And our God is a holy God. That means He's, he's set apart. He's perfect. That means He's completely separated from sin. He's, he's high and lifted up as Isaiah 6 says. He's on the throne. He's separate from everything else. Separate from everything that is imperfect. And in His holiness, He hates sin. And He will judge all sin with holy fire. So much that He will judge sinners eternally. As we saw at the end of chapter 16 last week. He, he hates sin so much that He sent His only begotten Son to bear His wrath for all the sins, for all time, for all who will ever trust in Him. And that's because Jesus is the only one who could. There's only one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus. He's the only one who could bridge that gap. He's the only one who can make a way between that great chasm. So if we're going to be Jesus' disciples, we have to have the same attitude towards sin that Jesus had and has. If we are learning from Jesus as disciples are to be doing, we must grow to hate sin. We must grow to hate sin in, in all its forms. Like Samuel to King Agag in 1 Samuel 15 that we've looked at here the past few months. We have got to hack sin to pieces. We have to have that holy attitude against the sin in our lives. If we read the Bible, beloved, there are no sins for which God is neutral. That means for us, there can be no sin for which we are neutral. There can be no sin for which we are allowed to be flippant. It's not a flippant thing. It's not a small thing to be contrary to the revealed will of God. Because in His Word, He reveals His character. And He tells us how He wants us to glorify Him. And so we cannot take sin lightly if we do love the Lord our God with all of our heart, soul, and mind. We have to hate sin with all we are because we love Him with all we are. And that means... That if we are obeying that greatest and foremost commandment to love God, we will by necessity be obeying the command that is like it to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's what Jesus Himself said. And we have seen how intertwined the love of God is with the love of others. 
You know, we read a, a, a chapter, a book like First John, and it becomes patently obvious that it is impossible to actually love God if you don't love your brother. If you know, and it's easy to love God. It's easy to love God, right? I mean, He makes it easy because He is perfect. God makes it easy to love Him because He is a loving Father who has condescended through His Son to save sinners like us. But then, you know, if we don't really love one another, we don't love God. And people are not nearly as easy to love. People are not nearly as easy to love as God is because we are not only sinners ourselves, but those who we are to love are sinners just like us. So how do we share life together the way God wants us to when there is sin? How do we love one another, love our neighbor as ourselves the way God calls us to? How do we share life together? as Jesus' disciples, when there is sin. That's what these verses are about. And Jesus gives us two big ways that we are to share life together when there is sin. And the first one will be relatively quick. The second one will take a little bit more time. But the first way we share life together when there is sin is by simply not leading others into sin. We share life together when there's sin by not leading others into sin. And that sounds so simple. It sounds patently obvious. But if it were so simple and obvious, when we walk out these doors, when we live our lives, Jesus wouldn't have had to say it. He wouldn't have had to say, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Inevitable. Jesus said it was inevitable because Jesus had no illusions about the goodness of man. You know, sometimes I listen to conservative talk radio, and sometimes that's good for me and sometimes it's not. But one of, one of the most prominent says from time to time that man is inherently good. He's wrong, even though he claims to be right 99.9% of the time. Okay? He's wrong. Man is not inherently good at all because man is a sinner. And Jesus had no illusions about that. He didn't live under the false pretense that we generally do good. In fact, Paul writes in Romans 3, there's none who does good. And in John 2, we see that Jesus himself did not entrust himself to man because why? What does John say? He knew what was in man. So, though not a sinner himself, Jesus was familiar with human nature. He knew that all sinned and fell short of his glory. So it was and would continue to be inevitable that stumbling blocks would come. We will be dealing with stumbling blocks, beloved, until the day we are with Christ. So what did Jesus mean by stumbling blocks? Well, that's an interesting word in the Greek. It, it is the Greek word scandalon from which we get scandal. But how are we to understand that? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 23 Paul says that the message of Christ 
is a stumbling block. The message of Christ crucified is a scandalon, a stumbling block to the Jews. And what he meant by that is that the Jews just could not get past the idea that their long-promised Messiah, Jesus, that, that it really was Jesus. Why? Because he had been crucified. And they imagined their Messiah to be nothing short of a king with the glory of David, with the wisdom of Solomon, reigning forever and evermore, putting an end to the Roman Empire, putting an end to everything bad, making Israel great again. And that's not what happened during the ministry of Christ. He was crucified in part by the Jews. So they couldn't get past the idea that Jesus was a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. That Jesus was crucified and that was a stumbling block to them. Something that prevented them, got in their way from entrusting themselves to Him. Well, Jesus uses that word in, in much the same way here. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come. It's inevitable that there will be things that will get in your way to believing in me. It is inevitable that there are things that will, will get in your way from uh, showing your, your full devotion to me, from glorifying me in all you do, from expressing faith in me, from being my disciple and having that obedience of faith unto salvation. They're inevitable, these stumbling blocks, he says, and they come in many different forms. Jesus himself ran into stumbling blocks. Now, he plowed right through them. But we see in, in Matthew 4 and in Luke 4 that the devil himself tried to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. Temptation is a major stumbling block for us each and every day of our lives. Different temptations come along. We are tempted in different ways. And, and each of these have a, a, a potential to knock us off the narrow road that leads to life. To knock us off the path of discipleship, of obeying Christ with all we are. To knock us off the path. You know, the devil was trying to knock Jesus off the path of fulfilling the will of his Father. And that's what happens to us. Not just the temptation, those stumbling blocks come in many ways. Perhaps when we provoke others to sin. Maybe by intentionally saying or doing something that will we know will get under another person's skin. Or perhaps it's when we, we give a sinful example to others by the way we talk, the, the, the things we do, how, how we treat the assembling of ourselves, maybe in the way we entertain ourselves. Stumbling blocks for us can be as basic as not doing what we know to be right. You know, to him who knows the, the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin, writes James. When we fail to do what the writer of Hebrews says, to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. You know, sometimes we think maybe just ignoring the other person is the best course of action. But then we are failing to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And we can prove to be a stumbling block when that, ha when that happens. Then there are stumbling blocks of a more overt nature. Those who stand in the way of the mission of the church. Those, uh, you know, the, the Jews were, 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 were big time stumbling blocks to the mission of the church in the early years. You know, uh, 
Those in Israel sought to, to worship God in spirit and truth, and it was the people like the Pharisees who got in their way. You know, standing in the way in spirit, you know, people who would say all the right things, they would look the part, they would do the stuff, but their hearts were revealed when it mattered the most. They end up standing in the way of the building up of the body of Christ. There can be stumbling blocks like that, or maybe they stand in the way of truth. False teachers, beloved. You say, well, I don't have a problem with false teachers. Baloney, false teachers are all over the place. There's a reason why Paul writes so much about the danger of false teachers. There's a reason why Peter writes so much in, in just short letters about the danger of false teachers. Jude, John, they all wrote about false teachers. Jesus talked about false teachers. And the scribes and Pharisees were perfecting the art of false teaching during, during Jesus' day because they were saying just enough to be believable. And those are the worst kind of false teachers, the kind that either get on TV in front of a big-time audience or maybe they just sit in the pew from week to week. But they say just enough to make you think they're on the right path. They will look just enough to, like they are doing the right thing to make you think that they trust in Jesus and are on the right path. But it's just a little... I mean, they, all you got to do is tweak the message a little bit before it becomes heresy. Before it leads people not down the narrow road that leads to life, but the broad path that leads to destruction. And Jesus hates it. Rather it be temptation, rather it be your interpersonal relationships being a stumbling block, rather it be a false teacher in a pulpit somewhere. He hates it. And what does he say about it? It would be better for the stumbling block, he or she who, who, who would stand in the, the way of the proclamation and the living of the, out of the truth. If a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea, then that he would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Let us not escape the gravity of this, beloved. It would be better to drown with a weighty stone around your neck. It would be better to be swallowed up by water than to spend eternity in hell. You know, the little ones here aren't children in the, little, in the literal sense. They are believers. They are children of God. Those whom God has chosen unto salvation and adopted as His sons and daughters, God hates when anyone or anything gets in the way of His children loving Him. God hates whenever anyone or anything stands in the way of someone seeking to follow His Son, Jesus Christ, believing in Him. He despises those who put up any barricades, any kind of obstruction on the narrow road. Any kind of temptation that might lure someone off that narrow road and into the broad path. Woe to Him through whom Stumbling blocks come, Jesus says. It's better to suffocate in an ocean. <clears throat> in fact, in other places, Jesus pretty much says it's better if he'd never been born. That's what he says of Judas. Beloved, if, if, if we are Jesus' disciples, and having the mind of Christ, and thus supposed to have the same attitude he has, if we are seeking to obey 
His command to love one another, then we'll do all we can to never be a stumbling block to anybody. Rather than get in the way of someone's pursuit of Christ, rather than obstruct someone on their walk with Christ, we need to be coming alongside them. And in fact, pushing them down the road if need be to help them down the narrow road. Jesus says in Luke 14, we've seen this, compel them to come into the banquet. We need to be doing all we can to get people on that narrow road, not stopping them from walking down it. That goes to where are, what are we doing in our lives? How then are we sharing life with others? How are you this morning sharing your life with others as it relates to their pursuit of Christ? Are you in the way or are you pulling them to Christ? To share life together, we can't lead one another into sin. Which leads to the second way that we share life together because sin's a reality. And if the first is to not lead people into sin, the second is to lead people out of sin. We must be leading people out of sin. If you and I as brothers and sisters in Christ are going to love one another, if we're going to say we love Christ, if we're going to share life together, we've got to lead one another out of sin. And this happens in a couple of different ways. The first is revealed by Christ here in verse 3. He says, you know, we have to be willing to call sin out in one another. You think about Jesus and his disciples, Matthew 16. Jesus is with them up at Caesarea Philippi. He's got his, his 12 with him, and he says, Who am I, Peter? And Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, This wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And on this rock, on this confession, I will build my church. The church is built upon the confession that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And right after Jesus said that, He began to tell His disciples about how He was going to go to Jerusalem and be crucified. And what did Peter do? Surely that's not going to happen, Lord. I'm not going to let that happen to you. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. Peter was in sin at that very moment because he was faithlessly contradicting the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not hesitate to call him out on his sin. Rebuke him, Luke writes, that Jesus says. And that, that Greek, it's a strong verb. It carries the idea of a censure, an admonishment, a reprimand. It's a strong verb because Jesus is as serious as he, as he can get when it comes to how we share life together. And we see as believers how we are to do this to and for one another in Matthew 18, verses 15 through 17, some of the hardest verses in, in all the Bible to actually live out faithfully. Jesus says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. So first, Jesus calls on us not to gossip about somebody's sin to somebody else, 
but to go to our brother or sister in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother, Jesus says. And that, by the way, is always the goal of rebuking sin. And let, let me be clear, let us be clear about that. The goal about rebuking sin in someone else is never to ostracize or demonize or insult somebody. It is always their repentance. If we rebuke sin in somebody else, the goal is always, always, always reconciliation. Always. Jesus continues, but if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every fact may be confirmed. Notice he doesn't say, spread the word and create an army against the one who's sinning. Sometimes that's what we're privy to do. No, he says, take one or two with you. The idea is you keep it small. The goal is not to have a nuclear explosion. You take one or two more. And the one or two more don't have to have seen and heard everything you saw or heard unless we're talking about a pastor. Now, let me, let me clarify what I mean when I say that. 1 Timothy 5.19 says, Paul writes, he says, Do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses. So it's a little different there. In Matthew 18, though, the point of taking one or two more with you is that in the second stage of confronting another brother or sister in sin, those others are witnesses with you to how the one being confronted will respond. And why is that necessary? Because Jesus continues in Matthew 18, if he refuses to listen to them, plural, tell it to the church, And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. And as we have seen, that's about as bad as it got when you're talking to the Jewish mindset, a Gentile or a tax collector. Beloved, if it gets to the point where someone in sin won't listen to brothers and sisters in Christ, won't listen to the Word of God being brought to bear on their lives in love, The truth has to be said in love. Otherwise, there's more than one person sinning. If this happens on more than one occasion, bringing attention to sin, calling a brother or sister to repentance, then it is the responsibility, it is the duty of the church to collectively call that person to repentance. And I have to say, beloved, this is an area in which American churches are a stumbling block. This is an area in which, uh, in my own opinion, in my own analysis of churches and church culture in America, we are out of step with the revealed will of God. Stumbling blocks are so widespread in the church today in part because those who profess Christ and, and so many churches have chosen to fear man more than God when it comes to this. We don't want to offend people. We don't want to turn people off. We are afraid of the effects of rebuking sin and what it might have on us, on our relationships. And that is an indictment of our sometimes faithless behavior. In the same way, in our Genesis study, we've seen that Abraham walked in faith, but at times had some very faithless behavior. This past Wednesday, we saw that Jacob, he walked in faith, but had some very faithless behavior. We too can be guilty 
Because if he refuses to listen even to the church, even after all these other avenues have been explored, if we fail to bring this to bear, then it's us who are in sin. It's us who are refusing to share life together. The way Jesus has told us, we are to share life together. So if he refuses to listen even to the church, even after all these other avenues have been explored, then let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector. In other words, if someone who professes Christ refuses to repent and obey the words of Christ, treat them as if they don't believe in Christ. The issue no longer is primarily reconciling them to the church. The issue is reconciling them to God. They don't need to be affirmed in that case. They need to be brought the gospel. And that is our mission. And it hurts. It may hurt a lot. I don't say this thinking this is a small thing. I don't say this naive. You do this in relationships that have lasted years between those who profess Jesus are put to the test. No doubt about it. But if we are too fearful of the repercussions of obeying Christ, then just who is our Lord? This is a question for each of us personally. This is a question for how we handle family and friends who profess to believe. This is a question for every local church. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If we fail to obey that, then it's us who needs to be rebuked. The good news, though, is that the goal is not to ostracize. Like I said, the goal is not division. The goal is always, always, always reconciliation. That's why Jesus says, and if he repents, forgive him. If he repents, forgive him. We are to be forgiving people, beloved. There there is no room for held grudges in a heart filled by the Spirit of God. It's antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle writes, The person who has not learned to bear and forbear, to put up with much, is not born of the Spirit. And those are very strong words, but I suspect he's not wrong. Because that certainly seems to be in line with what the Apostle John writes and what Jesus himself says. If you're a Christian... Think of what God has done for you. He has forgiven you and you know all you've done. You you know all you've said. You know the things you think. Only God knows better than, than you how short you fall of the glory of God. And still through the shed blood of Jesus by His grace, He has extended forgiveness to me. He's extended forgiveness to you. This is why Paul writes in Ephesians 4.32, a verse we'd all do well to commit to memory. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. You know, maybe there's a, a family member you need to show the grace of forgiveness to this Thursday. Maybe there's an estranged relationship in your life that needs to be remedied. Some grace needs to be shown. Forgive one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you.
You know, God puts up with much from us, and still He saves us. We need to continually be learning how to put up with more from each other. As God shows us grace, we've got to show grace to others. Now, Jesus does say if He repents. Don't take that to mean forgiveness is optional or dependent upon the one who has offended. After all, we have the example of Jesus before us, and He forgave His enemies even when they didn't ask for it. That said, Jesus doesn't say all of this about forgiving to suggest we ought to become someone's punching bag. God isn't going to be a punching bag for anyone. He's going to judge everyone who doesn't repent in hell. So, what does Jesus mean here? He, he means, and this is consistent with what we just saw in Matthew 18 and Jesus' own approach, is that there can and should be forgiveness. Forgiveness. But where there is no repentance or regret for sins committed, for injuries inflicted, there can be no restoration. There can be no reconciliation where there is no repentance. If you don't repent of your sins, when you get to Christ on that day of judgment, He's going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. He's not going to say, come on in. But wherever there is repentance, verse 4, if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. Meaning, we should always forgive. We should always be those who are wanting to give other believers the benefit of the doubt. And whenever there is repentance, we should always be open and eager to share life together because this is how God has treated us. God knows I sin again and again. We all sin again and again, but He forgives again and again and always through His once-for-all sacrifice of His Son. How can we not then be forgivers? How can we withhold from others that which God has freely given to us even when we didn't and don't and never will in and of ourselves deserve it? Jesus has said, For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. What he means by that, beloved, is how you treat others. Your willingness to forgive others is a direct reflection on whether or not you know Jesus Christ. How can we refuse to share life together? I say all this as someone who has his own soul searching to do with regard to some people in his life. My life. Perhaps this morning you need forgiveness. First from God. You know, Jesus has died to bear the punishment for all the sins, for all time, for all who trust in Him. He has been raised from the dead so that we don't have to live bitter and angry and hating people all the time. We can forgive because He's forgiven us. And he says, come. Come to me, all you who are weary. If you're weighed down by, by 
unresolved things in your life. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, Jesus says. Perhaps you need to seek forgiveness this morning from somebody else. I won't belabor that point except to say Jesus has spoken. And He's your Lord. And if He's your Lord, you have to obey Him. You have to obey Him. Or you stand in rebellion to the one who will judge. I implore you, as I am saying to myself, even as I preach this, repent, obey, and forgive, and love God, and love your neighbor as yourself, so that even when there is sin, we can still, because of the glory of Christ and what He's done for us, even when there's sin among us, we can still share life together. Let's pray. Father, I pray Your Holy Spirit will leave us restless until we've trusted in You enough to obey. You call us to constantly be repenting people, to be constant forgivers, and even confronting brothers and sisters in Christ when we see them heading down the wrong path, when we see them sinning. We've got to love other people enough to stand in the way in between them and their sin and say this is not the narrow road that leads to life. This is not in accordance with what Christ has told us to do. This is not in accordance with His character. Yes, we do need to take the logs out of our own eye. But Father, let us not allow our own failures to get in the way of loving our brothers and sisters enough to say, please stop sinning too. Crush us in our sin. Father, as we celebrate Thanksgiving this week, help us to be able to do so with sincere hearts. We can only do it by Your grace. And so I ask You that in this area of our lives, in this area of our, our families, our friends, our church, others who are struggling with the same thing outside of these walls, Father, I say glorify Thy name in all the earth. May we indeed bring you glory in how we share life together and how we respond to your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.